I want to read uh, some words from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, and we'll read through into chapter 10. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When He saw the crowds, He had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then He said to His disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into His harvest field. He called His twelve disciples to Him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, preach this message. The kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there and stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves." Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And then in Mark's Gospel, if you go across to Mark's Gospel, chapter 6 and verse 7 where in the first part of chapter 6, he's been amazed at the lack of faith of the people in his hometown. Then we read, Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. This is the Word of God. Let's pray. Lord, this is Your Word, and it speaks directly to us. As we hear it proclaimed... May you take away everything that would distort or distract or divert us from it. May those of us who do not know you be brought to a living and saving faith in you. 
May those of us who do know you but have become cold and hard-hearted and cynical be melted. May those of us who are discouraged be encouraged. May those, O oh Lord, who are seeking guidance, may we be given guidance. May all of us collectively, O oh Lord, just see what a wonderful thing it is to have your Word. Lord, we live in this, just tr- this tremendous famine of hearing your Word. And we pray that you would help us as we hear to digest, to, to meditate, and to pass it on to others so that the Word may grow and flourish. Lord, we ask that you would bless our time together just now, that you would keep the evil one from us, and that you would enable us truly to worship you in spirit and in truth. In your name we ask it. Amen. Okay, I'm, uh, I thought long and hard about saying a lot of this stuff, and that means I'm going to say it. Uh, some crazy ideas that, that came this week. The first was an email from Neil McMillan, who works for the Free Church, and his, his job now is to encourage people in church planting and so on. And he sent me an email that didn't make a lot of sense. But he said, David, is this... He said, am I going insane having changed my job? Or do you think this could possibly be from God? And basically, what he said in his email, I'll not read it all to you, was that could we not plant a thousand churches by the year 2015? And I wrote him back and said, no, let's make it 2020 and let's call it a 2020 vision. That Neil's idea was that we would send out small groups of people to live and work in communities, that we'd train people in the gospel, that there's this desperate famine of of hearing the words of the Lord. Now, that's a stupid dream at one level. It's impossible we can hardly sustain and maintain churches. And I'm not just talking about the free church. I'm talking about the Church of Scotland, Baptist, and so on. Churches that we have. What, what's this crazy? What makes us think that we could do something like that? Well, we couldn't. But the gospel, one of the things that's essential in terms of the gospel is that it has to be spread around. There's a Yorkshire proverb, money is like muck. No use unless it's spread around. Well, the gospel is the same in that way. And the trouble is that we have gotten ourselves into a mentality which talks about preserving and protecting the gospel. It's always a very defensive and a very negative uh, idea. And that's no use for Scotland. That's no use for Dundee. I was thinking about just the burden that God sometimes gives to you for a place and for a people. Um, you may not know, but this is the Roots Festival in Dundee just now, and the, um, there is a, a basically folk music and so on, and Annabelle and I have been a couple of things. Uh, one was the Black Sisters, who sang absolutely superb, 
though it was interesting that when they sang spirituals, they had to put a disclaimer at the front and say, it's not really spiritual, it's, a, it's, it's not really about the Bible, it's about oppression and so on. But the other was um, Sheila Wellington and Will McKennedy, who sang about songs of exile and Scottish songs. We were there in St. Paul's Cathedral, and beautiful, beautiful, beautiful singing. But very, it was very, very Scottish, English and, and, and Gaelic, and it just made you realize, well, it made me think about how beautiful Scotland is and what a great heritage we have and lots of different things like that. But what, what a desperate need there is in Scotland just now. And it made me really sad. And I've been reading a book about revivals in Scotland. And, and I have to tell you this, that according to this book, Scotland is the one nation in the world that's had more revivals than any other nation. An extraordinary impact consider and look at how, if, or if, that is something that we can expect and look for in the, the future, and if we can expect and look for here, if it's right to expect and look for here. And I'm, I'm thinking about this in the context of where you and I are and where St. Peter's is. Now, in one sense, we can look at St. Peter's and we can say, well, what a difference. At least most of you here probably couldn't, but the, the few of us who've been here over quite a number of years can see a great difference. I remember saying to a lady who's now dead, Jean Graham, that once we get more than 100 people in the church, that will allow you to go upstairs. Well, she laughed, and she forgot about it, which is just as well, because when we started getting more than 100 people, she didn't ask to go upstairs. But uh, uh, it just seemed so impossible. It seemed so, so silly. And we're looking at it now and uh, thinking about going back into the building and how we're going to have to use the upstairs and so on, and that, that seems great. And there are things that we could be very encouraged by. There are people who've been reached with the gospel. I visited one man this week who uh, years and years ago first heard the gospel through the work of this church and is now a Christian many years later. I didn't know anything about how that started his uh, journey and his pilgrimage towards Jesus Christ. But, and it's a huge but, it's not nearly enough. It's just not nearly enough. There are the elderly, there are children, there are students, there are junkies, there are Muslims, there are immigrants, there are religious, there are the poor, the wealthy, politicians and plebs. You, you just keep going. There are so many people who just do not know. And I believe that we have to have a goal. I believe that we, we have to be completely committed and completely dedicated to spreading the word of Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1, we read this, finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored just as it was with you, and pray that we may, delivered from, may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not everyone has faith. Pray that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honored. See, I don't see that in the church in Scotland. I just don't see it. And I'll be honest, I don't really see it in St. Peter's. I don't see the message of the Lord being spread rapidly. I tell you what I see happening. I see in the vast majority of churches, people not being taught the message of the Lord in the first place, being fed garbage. Then I see in churches where they are being taught the message of the Lord, it's not spreading. It's coming and people going, 
oh, that's a relief to know that that's true, or that's wonderful to get that Bible teaching. But there's not a kind of organic, exponential growth. Because from the New Testament, the norm should be that as the Word of God is proclaimed, it just keeps flowing. It doesn't stop. It doesn't stop with you. It doesn't even stop with the people you talk to. It just keeps spreading. It keeps going. And that's what we look at uh, in terms of Mark's gospel and where Jesus is at. The opposition that he was facing, and he calls the disciples to him, and he calls the disciples for a reason. He wants to send out the twelve, and he wants his word to be proclaimed. So, uh, we're going to take some time going through this passage, and I hope you'll see how it applies. This is the first time that the, the twelve are being sent out. Now, let me just bring together some basic principles of biblical mission, and, and again, I want to do something here that I, I hope you can see why I'm doing it. Uh, I want to challenge the notion that Caroline White is a missionary, or that Mark Ellis is a missionary amongst students, or that particular Claire Livingston as relay worker is a missionary, and that's it. Because what I want to suggest to you is that in actual fact, sometimes there's a cop-out there. There's a cop-out which says, we'll leave them to do missionary work, and we'll just get on with our lives, and we'll pay whatever we pay. Uh, If we're very biblical, we'll pay a tithe, and they'll do the work. That's what happens in churches so often. We come to church, we pay for church, but we don't think of ourselves very often as church, and we don't think of ourselves as missionaries. But this, what we're saying here about mission is for all whom Christ calls. So, we notice first of all, I'm just going to go through some of these. Some of them, you might want to go into more depth and find what we'll discuss it. But number one is this. They were sent out. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out. See the two things that happen. Jesus calls us to himself, and he calls us so that he can send us. It's as simple and as straightforward as that. We go and we tell people about Jesus, not on our own authority, but because we are sent out. We have to go and say. We have to go and tell them. Um, it's like, you may have noticed Emma Jane came up to me just there, just now, and she was telling me something, I said, Emma Jane, can you go and give Reese to a message? Tell him I need a glass of water. Okay? And so she did, and lo and behold, the water appeared. Wonderful. Thank you, Reese. It's, it's, you, you, you call and you send. We are called and we are sent. Now, that means lots and lots of different things, and has lots of practical implications. Number one is, we're under orders. Number two is, because of that, there's a dignity And number three, there's a responsibility that we have to represent Jesus properly. I suspect that there are far too many of us as Christians that we're just going without being sent. We need to to have this burden, we need to have this commissioning, we need to have this idea that we are sent by Christ. We have a commissioning service for missionaries as we should, but then maybe we should see almost every service as a commissioning to go into the world and to represent Jesus Christ. So, the first principle is we're sent out. The second principle is we're sent out to work together. 
he sent them out two by two. And that's a very strong Jewish and biblical tradition. The idea there is mutual protection and the law of two to three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19 verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict a man accused of any crime or offense he may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Or Ecclesiastes 4 verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. The whole idea of that two by two is that we help each other, we commit fewer mistakes if we are together, we um, comfort each other. To work alone is just simply not biblical. The one-man ministry is an anathema, and sadly, in the Scottish church, we have developed that model. It's not an ancient model. It's not a model that existed at the time of the Reformation. It's not a model that existed in the 19th century. It is a model that has developed in the 20th century. As people have become less communitarian, and as uh, perhaps you could say the ministry has become more professionalized, then it's become this idea that, well, in a church, very often you will have a minister, and the minister's job is what? Well, the minister's, do ev- the minister's job is sometimes to do everything, or at least to do what's considered to be the main things. And it's a thoroughly unbiblical model. We are to help one another. It's not about, for example, I, I'm not here saying, oh, listen guys, you should be supporting and helping me. That's, that's the, the wrong image that you have in your mind. It's not about me. It's about all of us supporting and helping one another. So, a very simple question would be to ask, what support and encouragement do you give to your fellow workers? your fellow Christian workers. Why do we meet together? Why are we here? It is to worship God, but then our whole life is to be worshipped. It is to receive something. That's true also, but it's for mutual encouragement. Let us consider, says Hebrews 10, 24, 25, how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. You see, sometimes I speak to people, and this is, uh, I mean, there's, there's so much in all of this, but it's, this is, for me, important as well. And you get this idea that, this is what they say, they say, I know, I, I got a lot out of church, but right now I'm just not getting too much. And I get more if I do this, and I get more if I do that. And I want to say, you're kind of missing the point, because we should be encouraging one another. We should be coming together to help one another, to motivate one another, to inspire one another by being in one another's presence. In fact, if you go through the New Testament letters, you'd be amazed at how many times the phrase one another is actually used. We are to work together. I believe personally that um, we have taken a huge gamble in St. Peter's. And I use that language advisedly. It's a gamble in one sense, because I believe if it doesn't happen as we are hoping and praying it will happen, then probably we're finished as a church. But my view is that the whole church in Scotland is finished anyway, unless we, we start taking risks, uh, what we would consider to be risks. But I think biblically, you can't look at it in that way.
But one of the big gambles, if you like, is this, that this will not work. It will not work. This church will not work. The spreading the gospel will not work. It will not work unless we work, unless you work. We can carry some passengers, but we can't carry many. And unless you are prepared to work and encourage people in the gospel, then what, what would be the point? What is the point? We work together, two by two. Third principle, we travel light. Look there, the mission was extremely urgent. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belt. The kingdom of God today is still a matter of extreme urgency, calling for absolute self-dedication. You only take that which is necessary because the Lord will provide. I want to just go through this briefly. Take a staff. The non-biblical Greek, the word that's used is a word that means a, a, a magic wand, but I don't think that's what's being referred to. Psalm 23, we sang verse 4, refers to the shepherd's rod. And it just simply means a simple walking stick. Take your walking stick. You're going to be doing a lot of walking. It's interesting, in Matthew 10.10, if you read that, if you're sharp, you'll have noticed there's a contradiction. Because in Matthew 10.10, it says, don't take a staff. So here you have in Mark, take a staff. And in Matthew 10.10, don't take a staff. Is this a, a, a contradiction? Matthew, we know that Matthew had Mark's gospel as a source. Was Matthew not aware of this? Well, it's one of those things that people sometimes use and say, oh, the Bible contradicts itself. Um, there's actually a fairly straightforward explanation because Matthew uses the word, which means um, not a staff, but a cudgel. In other words, a stick for beating somebody with. And he's saying, don't take that. You don't need that kind of protection. I will protect you. Just simply, he's basically saying, take something simple. Take a staff. In terms of clothing, the normal Jew would wear a tunic, which was a simple inner garment, a long piece of cloth folded over and sewn down one side, long enough to reach down to the feet. There'd be holes cut in the top corners for the arms. It was basically, and it wasn't exactly high fashion, it was just basically a sack with holes in it. The more developed ones would, would actually have sewn arms. That was the, the basic garment, and uh, then there was an outer garment, what was called a himachion, which was used as a cloak by day and a blanket by night. That was the kind of main article of dress. Then there was the girdle, which was worn over the two garments, and basically what you did with that is you could hitch up your tunic into your girdle so that you could run or so that you could work. And then there was a headdress that was a piece of cotton about a yard square, white, blue, or black, protected the head from the sun, held in place simply by a piece of wool around the head. And finally, there were the sandals, just straightforward leather, wood, or matted grass sandals. And Jesus says, you take that. You don't carry a bag with extra clothing. You just take the basic stuff. No bag could mean don't take an ordinary traveling bag, which was um, obviously wasn't a, a, a suitcase as we would have, more actually kind of like our rucksacks, and it was made of leather. Often the animal was skinned whole. It retained the shape of the animal, the legs, the tail, and all. It was a bag that you'd carry around your shoulder, and you would usually carry bread, cheese, raisins, olives for the journey. Now, it could be that Jesus is saying, don't do that, but it's more likely 
that it's the second one, because I don't think Jesus is saying, don't take food with you. If you were an itinerant teacher or disciple of someone, in the Jewish culture of that time, you would take a collecting bag with you to get contributions for your temple, uh, for, God, for your God if you, were, if you weren't a Jew. And what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, don't take. Don't take any collection. You know, it could be that if it was the first thing he's saying, he's saying, don't take supplies on the road, but rely on God to supply. There's a, um, a story that I love about the Strathpeffer Convention, which used to meet, obviously, up in Strathpeffer, up in the Highlands. People come from all over Britain. And uh, those who could afford to stayed. There's a really, Strathpeffer is a spa resort. It's a really posh hotel. Uh, I've never actually stayed there, but I've been in it. And those who could afford to stayed in that hotel. Others stayed in hostels and so on or camped. And you went along to the convention meetings. And the story is told of uh, a lady from the West Coast called Blind Mary who went and took a room at the hotel. And she stayed for the whole convention in this luxury hotel, in this luxury room, and went down. She's an older lady. And um, when she came down to the desk to leave, the clerk said to her, how will you be paying? And she said, my Lord will pay. And she was being spiritual. And the clerk said, thank you. That's great. Have a nice time. Goodbye. And the woman went off. There was a Lord staying in the hotel, and he got charged her bill. <laughs> and and uh, he actually very graciously agreed to pay it. You know, now Mary was, there's loads and loads of stories of blind Mary. Honestly, she'd just turn up places. She's, she's, she's literally, she'd go, now, I'm not suggesting, and I don't think Jesus is suggesting that you, you try that one, that you walk into the apex for lunch today, for example, and say, well, God will provide. Please give me the meal. Um, be an interesting way to go. But I tell you, I think what Jesus is saying in that, if you're taking it that way, is you don't need to have everything provided for you before you start doing something. That's an important principle. Say, yeah, I'm going to do this when I've got this and this, and when I get this in place and that in place and that in place and that, then I'll go. But that's not what Christ is saying. The urgency is such. Do you think Dundee can wait until you're ready? If we take the second meaning that they've been told not to be like the priest. I think that's an important meaning too, because we are there to give and not to get. Here's the thing. I don't believe the church should be funded from money out with the church. The only reason for doing things like sales of work and all that kind of stuff is not to get money, it's to get people in because it's an excuse for people to come and meet. That's a, I, I don't believe we should be going to the world and asking for money for the church. But I think the bar should be set incredibly high for those of us who are in the church. We do not purchase things. And churches, in my view, churches should not sell things. We shouldn't be perceived in any sense at all as trying to make money. We give things away as, as far as possible. That's what we should be doing. I think that that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, don't take a collecting bag with you when you're going to all these people. We are there to give and not to get. We are there to live simply. Maybe there's another meaning here as well, because I think there's multi-layered meanings in what Jesus is teaching. In the rabbinic law, it was the law that when a man entered the temple, he should put off his staff, his shoes, and his money back. In other words, you don't take those in. When you go into the temple, you go in as simply as you possibly can. 
All ordinary things were put aside on entering the holy place. Maybe Jesus is wanting the disciples to see the homes they enter as being every bit as sacred as the temple courts. In other words, he's saying to them, you are fulfilling a sacred and a holy duty as much as if you were a priest going into the temple. Verse 10, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. That's just simply saying, don't change for a more luxurious house. It's not just a social visit. You're not just on holiday. You're in it for the long haul. God is saying, look, get in, get involved, get stuck in, and stay put. Except, as we'll see in verse 11, what the exception is. Now, I think what's being said here is that our resources, spiritual and material, are not enough. They have to come from God, and we have to realize He provides for us. And what we are being called to is a new way of living, total dependence on God, total faith in God. I have no faith in myself. I have no faith in the free church. I have no faith in our abilities in St. Peter's. I have no idea how resources will be provided, but I believe that God, if God calls us to something, He will provide. He will provide. It's God's way. Principle number four, verse 11, shake the dust. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. I did door-to-door once. I've never, ever seen this in practice. This was in a town called Dumfries. There was a young man who'd just become a Christian, and he came on door-to-door with me. Uh, I'd just become a Christian as well. A bit daft sending both of us out. We went to someone's door, and the man came to the door and told us to get lost. He wasn't remotely interested. And as we turned around and went to the gate of his house, my, uh, the guy who was with me went like this. And I, I said, what are you doing? And he said, it says in the Bible you should shake the dust off your feet if they don't welcome you. And I was just, I mean, there was, that was taking it pretty literally. And the guy standing at the window looking absolutely horrified. I thought, well, maybe that, what does it mean? What does it mean, shake the dust? It was a common practice for Jews to shake the dust off their feet when they left heathen places. Jesus here invokes that custom as a legal system, uh, symbol, if you like, of rejection. The place is being declared as heathen. The role of the missionaries has been completed. Acts chapter 18, verse 5. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. Hospitality was a sacred duty. When a stranger entered a village, it was not his responsibility to search for hospitality, but it was the duty of the village to offer it. If this was refused, then they were to shake the dust off their feet when they left. Now here, this is what Jesus is saying. Jesus is expecting those who are not believers, the harassed and the helpless, to listen to his representatives. If they reject them, then they are rejecting Jesus. That's why it's so serious, by the way, when you present the gospel, and it's why it's so serious if you're here and you're hearing the gospel and you reject the gospel. Because when you reject God's representatives, you are rejecting God. When someone says, oh, I like Jesus, but I don't like the church, No, you don't. You don't like Jesus. You don't know Jesus. You are rejecting, when you reject his people, you are rejecting Christ. 
also here, though, there's another principle, and it's the principle of being fearless and flexible when we go out. Sinclair Ferguson, in commenting on this passage, says that there's a fearless perseverance, but also a foolish persistence. We, can, we are to fearlessly persevere in communicating the gospel, but there are times when it would be foolish to persist in certain areas or in certain places or with certain methods or with certain people. How many churches in Scotland today are being hindered because the ministers and the leaders and the people within it are saying, we can't do this because it will upset so-and-so in our congregation. So-and-so in your congregation has heard this for years and years and years and hasn't responded. What about the 99% of people in your community who don't come anywhere near your congregation? Churches that are afraid to lose the people they already have are churches that are not going to advance in proclaiming the gospel. We always need to be asking if we are using the resources of God in the best possible ways, because at the end of the day, we don't answer to a denomination or to a board in a church or to the government or to a bank. We, we answer on the day of judgment to God, what did you do with what I had given you? And so, Jesus sends out His disciples, and He says to them, you go, you are bold, and you shake the dust off. If, if people are rejecting, let them be. Move on. Proclaim the gospel. There's, if, if you think about it in terms of Dundee, 150,000 people in Dundee. Supposing we're proclaiming the gospel to 1,000 of them. Let's be excessively generous and say that that's happening, and those 1,000 reject. Move on. There's another 149,000. Keep going. Keep doing what Christ tells us to do, and that's the, the fifth thing. What we are to do, we are to preach, fight the devil, and heal. I'm not going, again, to go into that in great detail, just simply to say that the preaching is the key, the communication of the gospel, and from that comes out the driving out the demons and the anointing sick people with oil and healing them. God gives the authority to preach. That's why we take what we say from Jesus. We don't make up the message. We bring a message. It's not our opinions. It's God's truth. You cannot bring a message if you do not have a message from God. It's a message of repentance, a message where people need to come to know their sins and to turn a message which hurts because it involves the realization that the way we were following was wrong. It disturbs because there's a complete reversal of life. There's a novel called Quo Vadis, and in Quo Vadis, there's a film as well, but in Quo Vadis, uh, Vincentius, the young Romans, fall in love with a Christian. Because he's not a Christian, she won't go out with him. And this is what he says, or this is what is said about him. He didn't want to become a Christian because he felt that if, if he wished to follow that teaching, he would have to place a burning pile on all his thoughts, habits, and character, his whole nature up to that moment, burn them into ashes, and then fill himself with a life altogether different and an entirely new soul. That's what we have to teach people about repentance. It's not going to people and saying, look, your life is pretty good, or we can make your life better. It's going to people and saying, you're lost, and you need salvation. You're lost, even though you may consider that you are not lost. You are lost. And that's a tough, tough message to get across to people. In fact, you can't, and I can't, unless the Holy Spirit convicts of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come.
But we have a message to proclaim, and from that, He drives out demons. He gives them authority over unclean spirits. And again, there's so much to be said in that, but let me just simply say there are two kingdoms around us. There's the darkness and there's the light, and we are to bring the light of the gospel. As a Christian, you are going to live with this perpetual tension of being the light living in the darkness. Sometimes there's the darkness within. Sometimes there's the darkness you're just aware of. I was listening to the most depressing song I've ever heard in my life. I just re... It's a one, the wonders again of, of iTunes. Downloaded it and listened to it quite a bit. I have to stop listening to it because it really is so depressing. It's the, the door is the end. This is the end. Just listen to it and you'll see what I mean. Um, it makes people like Leonard Cohen sound positively joyful. It's... Uh, and I was listening to it and I was thinking... Why do I like this so much? It's, there's, a, there's a darkness in it. It's just it's so dark. And I think the reason I like it is because it describes the world that is. It's the world we live in. It's a world where there's so much darkness, and yet a world in which the light has come. And we are to drive out demons. We are to defeat the darkness. And we are to heal. We are involved. Again, oil was used as a, a, a healing symbol. It was used for medicinal purposes. It was used as a, as, as a cosmetic, actually, as well in biblical times. But here, I think in the Bible, it's used as a symbol of the Spirit's presence. And we are, if you like, ministering in a broken society, bringing healing. So, we are preaching the gospel, defeating the darkness, and healing the sick. That is what God calls us to do. And I look and I see some of that happening. And I'm encouraged by some of what I, I see happening. And yet, it's just, it's just not enough. It's not remotely enough. So let me conclude this by applying it. Firstly, I do want to say something to those who are not yet Christians. If the gospel is about healing, if it's about coming out of darkness into light then why would you not be healed? Why would you not want to know Jesus? One of, one of the most attractive things for me about the gospel is that it turns the world upside down. Do you want to join the most revolutionary movement in the world? Everything else is banal. Everything else is pathetic. Everything else is weak. Then you must seek Christ. You must pray and come to Christ. That is absolutely essential for you. And for those of us who are Christians, there's a challenge in all of this to us. There should be about us a basic simplicity, a complete trust, and a generosity which accompanies our Christianity and our witness. We bring to people the message and the mercy of the King. Now, please, I don't want you to go out and say, oh, I have to do this because otherwise I feel guilty and you know, that you haven't grasped it if that's the motivation. If you know that you're an ambassador, we often talk about bringing people in, but the priority surely is sending people out. It is about the power of the gospel rather than the safety of the church. We are an ambassador of the king because we live for the king. I'm tired of people using the church as somewhere where they are protected and comfortable and closeted and cozy. 
and shielded from the world when the church is to be a place where you are made very uncomfortable because Jesus says, come, and Jesus says, go, get out, do it. And you see, it's costly. I tell you, there's a very subtle way that the devil prevents this happening. And it's not a direct opposition. It's very subtle, and it, and it works with me, and it works, I think, with many of you. Because we'll look and we'll say, that is wonderful. Yes, we want to get out. We want to get the gospel. We want to communicate to people. We, want, we read missionary stories. We, we, we read about great heroes. And we'll have people like Ramat, who's, who's going to be coming to us. And some of the stories that he tells are absolutely fantastic. And we go, oh, that's just great. And we want to have people like that. But we don't want to be that. Why? Because... We want all the things that I've been talking about, reaching and healing and driving out demons and defeating the darkness and and the church developing and growing, but we want it without a cost. So we say, yet, Lord, please do that, but not at the cost of my family, not at the cost of my health, not at the cost of my job, not at the cost of my wealth, not at the cost of my status. In other words, anything that will disrupt my family life, anything that will disrupt my health, anything that will disrupt my financial health, anything that will disrupt my status with my friends or my job, then I'm not going there because I have a responsibility to look after my family. I have a responsibility to look after my health. And we take things that are absolutely good and right and things that are true and things that we should do, and we use them as an excuse not to serve God. Whereas everything, we compartmentalize our lives, in other words, whereas the Bible's attitude is just simply bung the whole lot in together, your whole life. It's not you that does it, it's your family. It's not you that does it, it's your church. It's all of us together, but you can't do it without a cost. The trouble is that most of us are Christians, like the idea of the fruit. We don't like the idea of the pruning. We don't like the idea that it can be hard work. I'm going to use this as an example because he's a gentleman who none of you know and is long, long gone, but many years ago in this church, a man came to see me, and he came to one of our services, and he's a Christian, professing Christian, and he said, oh, David, I love this, and, and, you know, you've got this radical teaching about the Bible, and it's just, this is what it should be like, and so on, and he came along, and so on. But after about four or five months, we had um, what my friend Tom Courtney calls a come-to-Jesus conversation. And uh, he was saying, I feel like I'm on the fringe of the congregation here. And I said, well, you should feel like that because you are. And he said, well, no, I shouldn't be. I said, no, no. I said, look, I'm going to be completely honest with you. You talked about how you love the radical ideas and the community and all that kind of stuff. You come to one service in six. You never invite anyone to your home. You're full of talk. You don't do anything. What do you expect? Of course you're on the fringe, and you're going to remain there. I'd like the upshot of that story to be that he repented and is now an elder in the church, um, but he didn't. He left. He said it was judgmental and too ridiculous and so on. Was it? get things wrong a lot of the time. But it's costly. It really, really is costly. You could argue here 
that Jesus took an awful risk. The disciples don't understand his teaching. They are very frightened, and yet he sends them out. It's not enough to hear the teaching, nor to observe miracles, nor even being with Jesus. But we are to risk ourselves in dependence on the gospel. One man puts it this way, the real test, the real moment of growth arrives when I myself am able to speak a word of witness or do some gospel deed in which my reputation, my being, depends on there being a power there to sustain me. Now hear this, a safe church is not really an influential church. We have great opportunities to preach the gospel, to heal and to cast out demons. Are we taking them? We really need revival. Now, I think this is happening in different places, bit by bit. I'm just mentioning some places in the free church. Uh, Carloway in Lewis, Smithton, Kilmally in Fort William, St. Columbus in Edinburgh, St. Vincent Street in Glasgow, and a little bit to some degree here. But we really do need revival. I've just read yesterday of, in the Caird Hall in 1932, when the Jeffreys brothers came, of how that the Caird Hall was absolutely filled with people who were wanting to hear about Jesus. Revival is this. Arthur Wallace puts it wonderfully. Divine intervention in the normal course of spiritual things. It is God revealing Himself to man in awful holiness and irresistible power. It is such a manifest worship of God that human personalities are put aside and human programs abandoned. It is man retiring into the background because God has taken the field. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that You took what in human terms was such a ridiculous risk, that You called twelve men to You who, even though didn't grasp what You were about, You sent them out to teach, to heal, to cast out demons. Lord, we ourselves feel very weak and very inadequate. We have done so many things that are stupid and wrong, and sometimes, oh Lord, we are so complacent, but we bless you that you've called us to do exactly the same. As you sent the twelve, so you send us to live simple lives, to proclaim the gospel, knowing that you are with us always, even to the very ends of the age. Lord, I thank you for your blessing that has been upon this church. But it's not enough. We do not mean to be irreverent or to despise the day of small things. But it's not enough. We long for there to be a revival, a real revival, a renewal, not for our comfort, but that our neighbors and our friends and our families, our workmates, the people we meet on the streets, that they may know you. Lord, may that work of revival and renewal begin with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing Psalm 126, which is a song that's asking, saying basically the same thing. And please just note the words that if we sow with tears, we reap with songs of joy. When Zion's fortunes God restored, it was a dream come true. Our mouths were then with laughter filled, our tongues with songs on you. Tune is Brother James is here. Let's stand to sing. <laughs>